Good morning, everybody. It's an honor to be with you again in what I expect to be my last time speaking to an empty house. <laughs> Your house is not empty, but uh, this one is. And uh, we are really looking forward to next week. And so it's going to be a magnificent time. And uh, we're grateful for all of you that have cooperated and signed up on our website. And uh, it's going to be a, a, f- uh, a new venture for us. And uh, it'll be our first Sunday to have two services. And uh, we are really, really excited about that and the potential that it brings to us. So um, I look forward to seeing you soon. God bless every one of you. I'm reading from the book of Judges, chapter 5 and also from the book of Acts. In Judges chapter 5 and verse 13, this of course deals with Deborah, one of these amazing judges who of course was a woman. And it said, then he made him that remaineth have dominion over the nobles among the people. The Lord made me have dominion over the mighty. Out of Ephraim was there a root of them against Amalek. After thee, Benjamin, among thy people, out of Meshir came down governors, watch this, and out of Zebulun, they that handle the pen of the writer. And then I want to read Acts chapter 28 and verse 31 preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. And my subject for you to consider right now, wherever you are, will simply be the word scribbles. Scribbles. It is one thing to read about what God has done. It is quite another to be involved with what God is doing. There's a fascinating place in the book of Daniel where he said, When I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years determined that Israel would be in captivity. And he's very specific. He said, I was reading the book of Jeremiah. We, of course, still have the book of Jeremiah. And there are two places in the book of Jeremiah where he told specifically, you are going to be in captivity for 70 years. And so Daniel's doing the math and he realizes that the 70 years is very quickly going to be over. And he, and he does something amazing. He says, when I, Daniel, understood by the book of Jeremiah, the years determined for Israel to be in captivity. He said, I set myself to fast and to pray with supplication. And it was always amazing to me because it is so obvious, Daniel knows what God is about to do. He knows the future. And yet, he's fasting. And he's praying and he's interceding 
strong crying and tears. Why? 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 Why would you pray and fast if you know what God is going to do? And the answer to me is very obvious. Daniel was not content with just knowing what God was going to do. He wanted to personally be involved with what God was about to do. So it's one thing to read the Bible, read about what he has done, but it's quite another thing to be involved with what God is doing. I am convinced that uh, his uh, creation is over, but his work is not done. Bible said in the book of Genesis, he rested from all that he created, but in the original language it said, he rested from all he created to make. So the plan is finished. The blueprints have been drawn, but God hasn't built everything that he has in the plan. And that's what excites me. I am convinced, grateful for what he's done. But what he's doing and what he is going to do still excites me. Scribes are mentioned often in the word. And although not exclusively, it appears that many of the scribes were from the tribe of Levi. Many of them were priests. These were, were, were learned men. It was their business to study the law. And uh, if you've ever heard of the word Talmud, Talmud is a, a commentary that is written about the Old Testament. It is highly regarded among Jewish rabbis. If you've ever dealt with the Mormon people, they will say this, the Bible is only good as properly interpreted by the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. So you have to have these supporting texts in order to be able to really understand what the Bible is saying. And that, sadly, is where Orthodox Judaism still resides today, that that uh, Pentateuch and the Torah, it's, it's, it's not enough just to have that. You've got to have these additional supporting texts, these commentaries that go alongside of that. And that was created by the scribes. It was, it was their business to study the law and translate it and write commentaries on it. And, and uh, they were also hired on many occasions to uh, create, of course, written documents uh, when a legal point was needed. I found a unique verse in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6. It said, Ezra, a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. So Ezra is a priest, but he's also a scribe. Scribes never changed history. Basically, their job was to write it down. Esther chapter 6 tells of King Ahasuerus having insomnia, couldn't get to sleep, 
And so he called for the chroniclers. And uh, this is what it said in Esther 6 and verse 1. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And that is when the king was reminded of something that Mordecai had done years before, and he had not been blessed for it. He had not been rewarded for it. And there's a great thought there that, uh, um, that the scribes have the ability to remind the king about his word. In 2 Kings 25, Babylon has invaded Israel. They have defeated the army. But listen to this verse in 2 Kings 25 and verse 19. And out of the city he took an officer that was set over the men of war and five men of them that were in the king's presence, which were found in the city. And the principal scribe of the host, which mustered the people of the land, and threescore men of the people of the land that were found in the city. What this is saying is that Babylon has effectively defeated the army. But there is this one person that they make sure that they arrest, and he's known as the principal scribe. Because this scribe had the ability to go back into his notes and remind the people the word is muster, which means to bring them together. This, this man had the ability to remind the people of what the Lord had done in their past and show them. This is when the job of the scribe starts changing in the word. Because in the beginning, basically their job was to write down history. But now... Now it's changing. This man, this principal scribe, is not just writing history, but using that history to motivate and build faith in the people that even though Babylon has won this battle, they don't have to win the war. And it wasn't an, a general that did this. It wasn't a king that did this. It was a scribe, a very specific man known as the principal scribe. This is the power the role of the scribe has developed into. Because in the beginning, they were stenographers. They were secretaries, keeping minutes of the decrees of the king and the acts of the Lord. But now their role has changed. And they are not just keepers of the past. They have the ability to use the things that have been said and done in the past to motivate the people about what God can do. This is the true role of the scribe. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not just here to celebrate what he has done. Because the last time I checked, he is not just limited to being called the God that was. In fact, the word calls him the am, the am, <laughs> the I am, the eternally present one. We are here to see what he is, not just what he's been, but what he is and what he will do. 
because we can't afford the luxury of getting a remnant mentality right now that will only rejoice over what the Lord has done. It's not enough just to have good notes and read the stories of the past and be content with memories. We used to sing a song years ago, look what the Lord has done. And uh, the problem is it limits us to what he has done. We are here to sing the other two verses of the song. Look what he is doing and look what he's going to do. As a pastor, I am doing the best I know how to lead this church through this difficult time. Trying to walk the tightrope between faith and fear and foolishness. I don't wanna be a frightened pastor, but I don't wanna be a foolish one either. But I do wanna please God, and I can't do that without faith. We have a website. We have an internet presence that welcomes the responses of those who listen and audit our efforts. And uh, the great balance of them, the great majority of them are very encouraging. And we thank you for all of your comments that you give to encourage us and to lift us up. But you would be amazed at some of the goofy things that end up on our website. On one hand, you have the ones who have an inherent distrust of government and they want us to defy civil authority. The other extreme are the ones who are dumbfounded as to why we would even entertain the idea of having church again. It is my job to try and find the mind of God in the middle of the cacophony of this muddled and befuddled world we're in. And I have no desire to place anyone in danger. But I need to remind you that Stephen, the very first martyr in the New Testament, he referred to the church as the church in the wilderness. He referred to Israel in the Old Testament. Chapter 7 of Acts and verse 38, he referred to Israel in the wilderness. He called them the church. And that's why Corinthians 10 and 11 says, all these things happened unto them, but it was supposed to be an example to us. It's why Romans 15 and four says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. They went through the act, but what they did was for our edification, for our education that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. I wanna remind you that in this time <coughs> of a panic called COVID, that plagues are not a new thing when it comes to the word and it comes to the Lord. In fact, you read the word and the first plagues that were mentioned were actually tools that God used to persuade Egypt's king to let the people go. They were in fact used to bless the church. <laughs> Why? Because it said there was darkness over all the land of Egypt, even darkness that could be felt, but all of Israel had light in their dwellings. There was light 
and there was protection in the church. Listen to these plagues. Water contaminated, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death. Think of that. Think of it. It's, it's, it's dark. You're in your bedroom. It's dark. So dark you can feel it. The problem is it's not two in the morning. It's two in the afternoon. And we're not talking about an eclipse because even during an eclipse, there's ambient light and you can still see your way around. This is absolute and total darkness. The smells that are assaulting your nose, the stench of the Nile that is now just gooey blood, the mountains of dead cows and sheep and goats rotting after being pummeled with hail and the unexplained plague that killed everything else, the hail mist. Your hand (coughs) reaches up to feel your bald head because you had to cut all of your hair off to get relief from the lice that were biting you, only to have that same hand leave your head and go down your body to scratch the boils that are on your arms and leg and on your back. And your efforts to sleep are useless because the flies are buzzing and the crawl, the frogs are croaking and the, the roar of the locusts <coughs> that are outside and many times in your house that have eaten what few green things were left. <coughs> Plagues. I'm not here to denigrate or belittle anyone, but I do want to remind you that the entire medical community has a logo of a snake wrapped around a stick. And the origin of that logo is a plague of snakes that came into the camp of Israel. And Moses made a snake out of brass and put it on a pole. And if the people would look at it, just look at it, they would be healed of the venomous bite of that snake. And hidden within that first cursing in the Bible, is a revelation few people have ever seen. (laughs) The first curse in the Bible was placed on the serpent. And this is what it says in 3 and 14. You're going to eat dust all the days of your life. You know, you have to read 2 and 7 of Genesis because it said man was made out of the dust of the earth. This is a warning to the rest of us, that the duty of the serpent will be to do everything he can to destroy and gobble up the ultimate creation of God. And when Moses took that brass serpent and put it on a pole, he was in fact giving one of the greatest Old Testament types of Calvary. Because few people ever make the connection to this and the most quoted verse in the Bible. What is the most quoted verse of the Bible? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish and have everlasting life. We haven't had a football game for quite a while, but I promise you when they start up again and they have crowds and they have somebody trying to kick a field goal, 
there's going to be somebody hanging over the side of those benches. John 3.16. I've seen it so many places. It's the most quoted verse in the Bible. But what you need to understand is what is in 14 and 15. This is what it says right before the most quoted verse in the Bible. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Lazarus was resurrected in John chapter 11. And this, it was in fact the miracle that that triggered Calvary. This was the stimulus. It was the massive coverage and fame that Jesus received. So many times in the Bible, he would heal somebody and say, don't, don't, don't tell anybody about this. And the reason was, it wasn't time for Calvary yet. But when Lazarus was resurrected, his fame went everywhere. And the, 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 Jesus received such, such popular attention from this miracle that it caused the religious world to begin to plot against him. And in the next chapter, John chapter 12, Jesus is reminding them, now it's time for me to die, and says this, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. It's going back to that stick lifted up on that limb. And I can't get sidetracked with this right now, but I need to remind you that just as that picture of the problem was lifted on a limb in the Old Testament, Jesus, the Bible said, was made sin for us and lifted on a tree. Why? To provide a remedy for a plague called sin. Does this COVID-19 scare you to death? Well, good. But I got bad news for you. What are you going to do when COVID-20 shows up and 21 and 22 and 23? Does this pandemic scare you to death? Good. Maybe now you can begin to realize the amazing power of Calvary and what he accomplished on the cross because you can't quarantine yourself from sin and the eventual death it brings to the soul and the body. (coughs) If you think this plague is horrible, what do you think about someone that had the sins of the world that was placed upon him? Did you ever stop to realize that every one of us knows, we know in the back of our mind, we're going to die. And yet I never dwell on that. I never do, I don't even think about it. We know it's going to happen. And yet, we have the ability to think of better things. So don't get obsessed with this thing right now, and don't tell me that you can't lay it aside, because every day of your life, you're laying aside something even worse than the virus. You're laying aside your eventual demise. I don't think about dying today. I'm too busy living. It's not enough just to remember what he has done, but to have faith and believe for what he is about to do. Too many Pentecostals read more than they write. Are you gonna be a scribe or are you just gonna scribble? I am grateful 
for where we have been. But I am very excited about where we're going. Because when you read about scribes in the New Testament, I first read to you about scribes in the Old Testament, but when you read about scribes in the New Testament, it is not by chance that one of the first sermons that Jesus ever preached is called the Sermon on the Mount. But he shocked the crowd when he said this, that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never gonna get into the kingdom. If you wanna read spiritual cussing, I'm telling you the crudest chapter in the Bible is Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus starts rebuking people. But he doesn't begin his rebuke with the Pharisees and the hypocrites. But in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13, 23 and 15, 23 and 23, 23 and 25, 23 and 27. This is what it says. This is how it begins in Matthew 22. (coughs) Matthew 23 and verse two saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Read how he says, woe unto you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom. You won't go in and you'll do everything you can to stop other people from going in. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You go around the world, they make you a a proselyte. And he said in verse 15, and when you get them, you make them a twofold child of hell, just like you. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithe of mint, cumin, and anise, which are medicinal herbs that were in their garden. And he said, you have omitted the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. You should have done that and continued to pay your tithes as well. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, the outside of the glass, man, beautiful cup. The platter is amazing, but what's inside of that cup is extortion and excess. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, your whited sepulchers. He called them a generation of snakes, a bunch of vipers. Follow the tribe of Zebulun through the word. Issachar and Zebulun always ran together. Here's First Chronicles 12, 32 and 33. And of the children of Issachar, which men that had understanding of the times. Wow which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them were 200 and all their brethren were at their commandment and of Zebulun, such as went forth to battle, expert in war with all instruments of war, 50,000, which could keep rank, which means they wouldn't break rank. They wouldn't just start retreating. They stayed together. They were not of a double heart. Issachar and Zebulun were together. These were the people, you will remember, who packed the mules when they realized David was going to be the next king. These were the men that packed the dirt in the sacks for the mules. They weren't stuck in the past. Here's Isaiah chapter nine. Watch closely. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation 
when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Watch this prophecy. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Read Luke chapter four. Read the first uh, message that Jesus preached. And he went there, Nazareth, and as his custom was, he went to the synagogue and he read. He's a young rabbi, he's 30 years old. He couldn't be, a, couldn't be a priest until you were 30. He's 30 years old. He's just been publicly baptized, been, been washed by John the Baptist. He goes into the simple. They give him the scroll of Isaiah. He starts reading Isaiah 61. Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek and the opening of the prison to them that are bound and on and on. This is, and, and it says to declare that, that, that year, that, that specific year, year of the Lord. What was that year that Isaiah was talking about? It was the year of Jubilee because it's obvious the first year of the ministry of Jesus was a Jubilee year land in, in the land of Israel. Every 50 years there was a, a, it was an amazing year because every day of the year somebody was getting the family farm back that they had lost in the last 50 years by some foolish decision. What an exciting exciting time it was. Once in your lifetime, maybe twice, but for most people, it was a once in a lifetime experience. And Jesus says to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, closed that scroll, gave it back to the high priest, and then stunned, stunned those people when he said, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. When he said that, he was saying, I am Jubilee. You don't have to wait 50 years again. For Isn't it amazing? The first message Jesus preached wasn't about water baptism or the infilling of the Spirit. The first message that he preached was about deliverance. Deliverance. Study the book of, of, of Exodus. There are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. But you read, you read those first 19 chapters. And that's just talking about getting out of Egypt. And then in chapter 20, the law is given in 20 through 24. And then 25 through 40 is the tabernacle and building up the kingdom of God. And within that structure is really what goes on. Because this is what it's saying. First, First, there needs to be deliverance. And then you're taught the word. And then there's church life after that. You gotta understand, we've got people that, 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 that never get delivered. You've gotta have a deliverance first. And that's why the ministry of Jesus did not begin with water baptism or telling everybody had to be filled with the spirit. He began his ministry with teaching these people about deliverance and restoration. And that was so powerful for the way that he started. But look what happened after that message. They got, they, some smart aleck said, wait a minute, is, isn't that Joseph's boy? Isn't Mary his mother? Isn't that the kid that used to work in the carpenter shop? And it said, they, they, they expelled him from their city. And he went 20 miles down the road. And there, read, read, read the story of, of what's known as the demoniac of Gadara and those, those demons 
demons, that legion of demons that was in that man. What did that chief devil say? What, how did it respond? How did it address Jesus? He said, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come here to torment us before our time? Even the devils knew that the headquarters of Jesus's ministry was supposed to be set up in Nazareth, but it wasn't. It said that the scripture would be fulfilled that he'd be called a Nazarene, but he did not stay in Nazareth. He went 20 miles down the road. Where did he go? Do your homework of the 39 miracles that are mentioned in the New Testament. And there are two thirds of those things happen in one specific area. Lay a map over that area and I'll tell you where it is. It's the land that the tribe of Zebulun was given. And that's why years ago, Isaiah made a prophecy and said, Zebulun, a great light, a great light is gonna happen in that land. And that's why Jesus's ministry was in that land, the land of Zebulun. I wrote, read to you in the beginning that out of Zebulun are gonna come these people who know how to handle the pen of the writer. That it's out of that land where scribes are supposed to come. When he stepped out of the wilderness of temptation, he began his ministry not in Nazareth, but in Zebulun because it was a different day. No wonder he's called the author and the finisher of our faith. Followed, followed and tracked by scribes. Listen to Luke 6 and verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. I remember I was preaching in a conference several years ago, somewhere between the North Pole and the South Pole. And I made some old preachers very, very mad at me. And when I got done with my message, I went to step off of the platform and there were three of those men there and they were ready to just fillet me. And a magnificent old elder named James Kilgore stood between me and those three mean old men. And he looked out into nowhere and he said, and there were men there to catch him in his words. And those three men became so ashamed that they left and disappeared. It's a quote from Mark 12 and 13. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. I just passed 63 years just a couple weeks ago, but I intend to lead this church into and through another building program. Why? Because I'm not ready just to lean on the past and keep talking about what he's done and he's done amazing things. But I intend to be someone who's gonna write stories. I wanna be a scribe and not just a scribbler. I don't wanna just read about what God has done. I wanna live it. I want to see it. I don't want to just talk about what happened in another church or another country. I want it to happen here. I believe it will happen here. Remember the story of the woman caught in the very act of adultery in John 8. Listen to how it begins in 8 and 3. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman caught in adultery. 
She was taken, where is the man at? That's what I always wanted to know. These scribes are there, full of stories from the past. All of their commentaries, the law says we're supposed to stone her. No, it doesn't, it doesn't say that at all. It says you take some, a glass and you scoop up some dust from the floor of the house of God and you mix it with some water and you have her drink it. And if she's guilty, her thigh's gonna rot, which means she wouldn't have the ability to have children, but what they weren't planning on (laughs) is the author was there, the author, the writer, the ultimate scribe was there. And while they're trying to quote what was their twisted version of the past, Jesus knelt and began to write in the sand. And I always wondered what in the world he wrote. I always wondered if he didn't write one of their names and whatever, Motel 6, 1030 at night, you know, March 24th, I always wondered if he didn't write some of their sins in that sand. I just know that the crowd dispersed and disappeared. By the time, listen to me, by the time Jesus walked the earth, the Jews had decided that to carry a loaf of bread from one house to another broke the Sabbath, that to extinguish a lamp was work, and that it was permissible to lift a child But if the child had a stone in his hand while being lifted by its mother, mother had broken the Sabbath by doing work. It was permissible to look in a mirror, but if you saw a white hair and you plucked it out, that was work. That to scatter two seeds was sowing and therefore work. That to pluck a blade of grass was work and to lift a dried fig was to lift a burden, therefore work. It's no wonder that Jesus refused to keep the traditions of the elders regarding the Sabbath. And he said, if your animal falls in a ditch, are you gonna leave it there? No. And he said, and neither am I gonna let this man stay, 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 stay sick. I'm gonna heal on the Sabbath. Read, read those epistles those letters in the New Testament. There is something that all of them share. Read the last chapter of the book of Romans. And as Paul literally devotes the entire chapter to saying goodbye, he ends the letter to Corinthians the same way that he does the letter to the church in Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, both letters to Thessalonica in the same way. The three letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus. Whoever the mystery writer of Hebrews was followed the same pattern because Hebrews ends the same way. Peter did it with both of his books. John did it with all four of his. Every one of those books end with the word amen. The benediction to most prayers. The way you you end things. It literally means so be it. But listen to the last chapter of the book of Acts preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. There is no amen in the book of Acts. Why? It's still going on. We are the apostles. 
Study, do your homework. It's a Greek word, apostolos. It has two definitions. It means the one sent with the message. So on one hand, the word apostle is referring to the messenger. But ladies and gentlemen, there can be no apostle if he doesn't have the right message. And we have too many people sidetracked with the title, I'm an apostle. Really? What's your message? And the answer to this thing is, we, we, we've quoted it wrong. Go to the book of Acts. Go to the book of Acts. It's sloppy. It's slang. That's not what it says. It's not the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. That's the title of the book. That's the name of the book. And I am convinced the thing doesn't end the way the others do. Why? Because of the increase of his kingdom and his government, there shall be no end. And this is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there were also many other things which Jesus, Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose not even the world, could contain the books. Hallelujah. I don't want to just scribble. I got birthday cards recently, and, and I, 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 I'm grateful for your gifts, but I've never expected gifts. I'm always grateful for what you do for me, but it's your cards that really move me. And I got this one card, <laughs> and, and it was obviously from a child, and it was just all red on, on the, the envelope was all red, and the back of it was all blue, and, and I opened it up, and, and it was just it was just random, very colorful. And I knew, I knew it was from Stephen and Brandell's kids. <laughs> and I called him and said, thank you, thank you for my, for my card. <laughs> because to me, they, what was scribbles to most people was an amazing expression of love to me. That I'm an adult and when I write something, I don't scribble anymore. I want it to be legible. So what are we going to be, ladies and gentlemen? Are we going to, what kind of scribe are we going to be? Are we going to be someone who's going to take what God has done and it motivates us and builds faith for what he's going to do? Or are we just going to be somebody who lives in the past and all we want to do is add our commentaries and our rules and our regulations and make this so restrictive that the litter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Bow your head with me. Lord Jesus, I have no idea where this thing is going right now. We're getting responses from all over the world, and we are humbled, God, by the power that this means and this method presents and provides to us. I'm so excited, God, about the fact that we're going to be in this room one week from today. And I am believing you, God, that not only just in this church, in this congregation, but across this country and around this world, I want people to understand, don't be afraid of the virus. <laughs> you be afraid of someone 
that can do more than just harm your body. You'd be afraid of someone that could kill your soul and damn you. That's what you really need to be afraid of. I want the seriousness of this thing to settle upon us, Lord, and for us to have an amazing explosion of faith because through all of this, we have seen you do amazing things. And your word says to the God that only does wonderful things. And I thank you, Lord, and I ask you to bless each and every one that's viewing this lesson right now. I trust that it will motivate them and it will build up their faith and build up their desire to be more than just a stenographer and just a, a writer and a reader of memories, but that we'll make our own memories so that when our kids grow up, they can remember these times and remember how their dad prayed and how their mother touched God during these times that we have been waiting. And your word says, they that wait on him should renew their strength. And so we're coming out of this thing, not weaker, but stronger. In Jesus' name we pray and call it done. Amen. Amen. In Jesus' name. Whew. Hallelujah.